Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. And so glad that you're here. And Mr. Alex Hab, thank you so much for singing for us on the fly. Brothers, can we thank him once more? I'm especially grateful that I did not have to leave us or lead us on the fly. My dad usually says I sound when I sing like a dying animal in a rainstorm. I'm not sure what that means. It's a Mississippi thing. But I thank you for leading us, brother. Uh, especially, you know, Martin Luther, I was talking to the inquirers last night, talking to them about worship. And I, I just remember these quotes from Martin Luther that Martin Luther said in the life of a believer, uh, only second to the word of God, worship has the highest place of honor in the life of a believer because the devil flees almost as quickly to the sound of God's people singing as he does to his own word. And so I'm glad, Alex, that you uh, allowed us to experience both of those things this morning. Fellas, go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Um, earlier this week, just a little bit of light reading, um, I was reading some Frederick Nietzsche. Does anybody know who Frederick Nietzsche is? It's a little light reading on a Wednesday morning. Uh, if you don't know Frederick, he's a piece of work. He was a world-renowned German philosopher in the 19th century, also a very ardent atheist. And he said a lot of horrible erroneous, terrible things about religion in general, but specifically Christianity. He was, however, very perceptive when it came to human nature, even if he did carry it a little bit too far, particularly with what human motives are. And he coined this term called the will to power. And essentially what it means is that no one person does anything for truly altruistic reasons. Underneath it all, there's a will to power. They're just doing whatever they're doing in order to get something from other people. And so, of course, he applied that to the church and to Christian leaders. You can't trust those Christians because they're just out to get something from other people, whether if it's power, fame, uh, sex, money, whatever it might be. You can't trust them because they're in it for themselves, the will to power. Now, that belief is held by a whole lot of folks in our secular world today. Unfortunately, because of the rise of tele-evangelists and their predatory behavior, and also uh, celebrity pastors and their very public moral fa failings and abuses of power. Unfortunately, the secular world has a whole lot of examples to point to. And they'll say, listen, I told you, you couldn't trust those Christians. You can't trust the church. They're only in it for themselves. They don't care about us. They have the will to power. I bring that up because that is essentially of what Paul was being accused of all the way back in the first century. Paul, he leaves Thessalonica because of intense persecution. And when he leaves, his opponents and the opponents of the gospel swoop in to take advantage of the situation. And they sought to undermine his ministry. And so they were telling these new Christians and really everybody in town that may have heard from Paul. See, you can't trust Paul. You can't trust that gospel of Jesus that he was telling you about. He's a charlatan, this Paul. He's in it for himself. All he cares about is what he can take from you. I mean, look, as soon as life got hard, he bolted and he left you with the check. I mean, you're the ones that are being persecuted right now. Paul didn't care about you. He had a will to power. Now, it's for those reasons, in part at least, that Paul writes this letter, especially the passage that we're about to study. This is a defense that Paul makes for his ministry. Now, we know that Paul wasn't really interested in defending himself. He wasn't a guy who cared about self-preservation. We know that from his life and his ministry. But he was very much interested in defending the gospel and the glory and the honor of God. And so in verses 1 through 16, we see his uh, defense of his ministry. 
And when we read it, you're going to notice something very interesting. In order to defend his ministry, he never points to really the effects of his ministry. To defend his ministry, he rather points to his own character. Our behavior, after all, more so than what we say, reveals who we really are. And so in order to defend his ministry, the gospel and the glory of God, he points to his own character. I really like what John Stott says about this. He says in this passage, these, the lasting value of our passage this morning is the insights it gives into Paul's pastoral heart. In these verses, more so than anywhere else in his writings, he bears his soul and his motivations for ministry. And that's how I want to frame up our time, talking about Paul's model of ministry, the motivations behind it. How do we apply this, brothers? You and I are not apostles. We have not been given an, apost an apostolic ministry from the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us are not even in full-time vocational ministry, but as men after God's own heart, as those in Jesus Christ, believe it or not, every single one of us in this room are ministers of God's word. Every single one of us have been called to make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, we do that differently. Some of us do that vocationally. Others of us are involved in a Bible study. We're all involved in a Bible study this morning. Some of you are involved in small groups. You have mentoring relationships, one-on-ones, where you're helping people, discipling them in the faith. If you have children, you're raising your children in the faith. If we're Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ... We are leaders in God's church, and we have been made ministers of God's word, which is why I love this passage so much. Because in his defense of his ministry, Paul provides us a model of ministry, a model of ministry, an effective model of ministry that's done so with integrity, all for the glory of God. Again, John Stott says, no one engaged in any form of ministry can fail to be touched, informed, and challenged by the model that Paul sets forth in verses 1 through 16. There's four metaphors that Paul uses for his ministry right here, which are meant to be modeled by us and whatever ministry that God has given us. So let us read it together, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness." Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Jesus Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, 
but as it really was, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and all oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so grateful for this morning. We're grateful for our breakfast. We're grateful for this fellowship. We're most certainly grateful for your word. We pray that you would teach us, that you would help us, that you would transform us to be more and more like your beloved son. We need your spirit for this, O oh Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Four metaphors that Paul uses that are meant for us to model in the ministries in which God has given us, whatever that ministry might be. Four metaphors. The first metaphor we see in verse 1 and 2, and has everything to do with fruitfulness. Uh, this metaphor is somewhat implied. It's only implicitly stated, but it's powerful nonetheless. Look at verse 1. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That phrase in vain is a very depressing word. What does it mean? It means all for naught, without effect, empty, and fruitless. That's not a good word, in vain. So in verse 1, what Paul is saying, even though our ministry to you was short, it was only about a month long, it was not without effect. Something happened there in Thessalonica in your midst. In fact, we were very fruitful. That's the opposite of not being in vain. It was very fruitful. Now, brothers, isn't that something that we all desire? I mean, in ministry, we want to be fruitful. We don't want to be empty or without effect. We want our Bible studies to be fruitful. We want our small groups to be fruitful. The one-on-one -on -one conversations that we have with each other or younger men or older men that we're mentoring, leading in the faith, or even raising our children in the faith. We don't want to get to the end of all of those things and say, well, doggone it, that was a waste of time. I mean, we don't want to be there. We want to be fruitful people. So the question is, how in the world can we be fruitful? How can we know that we're being fruitful? I'm glad you asked. Paul tells you right there in uh, verse 2. Paul says, I was fruitful, and I know that I was fruitful because I was bold. Now, isn't that weird? That Paul says, I was fruitful. In fact, I know that I'm being fruitful because I was bold. You would think, he would say, I know that I was fruitful because your lives changed. Tommy, you quit going to the red light district. Frank, you sobered up. Jim, you got back with your wife. I mean, your lives changed. And had he said that, he would have been truthful because their lives did change, as we see elsewhere in his correspondence with the Thessalonians. But that's not what he says here. He does not point to the effects of the gospel. Rather, he points to the attitude in which he ministered out of. He said, I was bold. There's something I think we can take from that. Uh, in this day and age in ministry, especially if you're leading in some way, we typically take business principles and apply it to ministry. We say, look at these metrics. The three Bs, butts in the seats, big budget, building. We're increasing in those things. We must be fruitful. People are coming to my ministry. People are coming to my small group. I must be fruitful. If those things aren't increasing, that means, well, I'm not fruitful, and that's sad, right? Paul says, be careful not to do that. And here's why. True fruitfulness is often really hard to discern. 
there could be a whole lot of reasons people are going to your small groups. There could be a whole lot of different reasons people are coming to our churches. There could be a whole lot of different reasons people are going to your Sunday school. Fruitfulness is, is really hard to discern. So Paul says, don't worry about the metrics. Make your confidence the word of God. Boldly proclaim. That's the silver bullet, and here's why. Whether if you can see it or not or measure it or not, brothers, the gospel is always productive. That's what God's word says. The gospel, not us, the gospel is always, always productive. Paul didn't put stock in his own ability. He put stock in the gospel of God and how he proclaimed it. Because God is always at work in his word. The Bible tells us the spirit wields the word of God as a sword and he always accomplishes his purposes. Paul says, even in suffering, we were bold with the gospel. We were being fruitful, right? Because we boldly proclaimed the gospel. Why? Because the word of God does not return void. It is the word of God. Not what we say or think or what we do, but it's the word of God that is profitable for teaching, that is profitable for reproof and correction and training and righteousness. Brothers, this is why we must take seriously word ministry. We don't need to get fancy. We don't need to get fancy is what Paul says. He goes, stick with the gospel and boldly proclaim it because that is what's going to make you fruitful. Now, a big question is, how in the world do we get fruitful? How in the world do we get bold, right? Because the word bold here, <laughs> it's so unlike my personality. It says to speak frankly, openly, and with courage. I don't know about you, but I'm not those things. I'm not a very courageous person. You might think because I'm a preacher and I get up here that I'm outgoing and extroverted. I'm very much not so. I'm an introverted person talking to strangers terrifies me. I don't enjoy it. I'll do it because I love people and that's my job, but I would rather just stay home and not talk to anybody. I mean, that's my personality. And sharing the gospel with people, especially those I don't know, I mean, that certainly makes me quake in my boots. Some of y'all might have the personality where that's easy for you. I'm not one of those, and I bet you a lot of you aren't either. Where did Paul get his boldness from? I promise you it was not because of his personality. Paul might have been good with people, but I guarantee you he was not a charming person. It's not like he had people over for dinner and won them over with that great personality that God gave him. Some of y'all have that gift, and it is a gift that you're able, just you're really great with people. Paul might have been great with people. I doubt it, just looking at Paul's life. All right, he was kind of a rough guy. So where did his boldness come from? He tells us. His boldness was not a matter of personality. His boldness came, what does he say, from being in God. That's where his boldness came from. His confidence was in the fact that he was united to the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, Christ in him and he in Christ. All throughout his letters, Paul says, my confidence comes from the fact that I am all caught up in the Lord. It's not I who live. I am of no significance. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Just listen to some of these things that Paul says. Colossians 3.3, my life is hidden in God. I don't care if you see me because it's not about me. My life is hidden in the creator of the cosmos. I trust in God, not myself or my own personality. I hope in God, not myself or this world. I hope in God, Romans 15, 13. As one who is united to the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew that God was so utterly committed to his goodness. As one who's united to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he knew nothing in this world could ever separate him from the love of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that you and I can be 
bold in proclaiming the gospel when we realize that we are in the apple of our Father's eye. When you know that you are loved by the only one that really matters, it frees you to lay down your cool jacket if you have one, which is really a straight jacket when you're constantly worried about how you might be received. You're able to lay that down and to be bold for God when you know that you're hidden in him. So it's kind of like when we're kids. You know, you're a kid, you're going to school, you're getting bullied, you're just a miserable day, and you go home, and your dad sees the fear in your face, and if he's a good dad, he bends down and swoops his arm around you and lifts you up and lets you know how loved you are. In that moment, as a child, you feel like you could conquer the world because the only person in your world that matters, you know, loves you. Or you get older, you have a miserable day at work, you have that constant anxiety, like if I do something really dumb at work, I'm going to get fired. So there's just that, you know, that really, that's, there's a kind of a, like a low-level back pain. There's that nervous anxiety they always have. But when you get home, you know that your wife loves you no matter what. And that just makes you, like you, that just makes you feel like you can conquer the world, that I'm safe here. My wife loves me. She cares for me. I don't care what you guys think about me because I have a woman at home who loves me. It's that feeling. There's another pastor who's no longer on staff, and I won't tell you what his name is because he told me this in confidence. I'm sure he wouldn't mind sharing it with you. But it's helped me to a great degree. When I was a young intern, he says, Barton, you are never not going to be nervous when you preach the gospel. Never. You'll always be nervous. But this is how you get through it. This is what I do every time I preach. As I'm walking up to the pulpit, I remind myself that God the Father has set his affections upon me before the foundations of the world. God the Son has accomplished everything I needed to accomplish. And God the Holy Spirit is with me now, comforting me, using me to talk to them. And when you know that, it really doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. How are we going to be fruitful? We speak boldly. How do we speak boldly? You believe that you're in the apple of your father's eye, brothers. So, first takeaway, may we pray for ourselves and for each other that we have a gospel confidence about us, fruitfulness. Now, the second metaphor is stewardship. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Again, this metaphor is only implied, but it's powerfully implied. Look what Paul says in verse 4. We were entrusted, are entrusted with the gospel. To be entrusted with anything means that you're a steward of that something. You're not the owner of it. You didn't originate with it, but you are a steward of it. You're not the owner. You're a steward. Paul uses this analogy to describe his relationship with God's word elsewhere. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, later in chapter 9, and those other references uh, listed there for you in 1 and 2 Timothy, Galatians 2, 7. Very interesting stuff. A lot of stuff you can glean from that. Look at those later. But Paul says that he's been entrusted with the gospel. He's a steward. Now, before he really gets to what that means and the implications of it, in verse 3, he sets out in a series of basically... Uh, arguments of why all these negative things people were saying about him are false. And there's a lot of neat things, important things we can learn about ministry from Paul's defense in verse 3. So look at verse 3. Paul says, our appeal. And when he says appeal, he's talking about that gospel boldness, that proclamation we just mentioned, that the ones that we're supposed to have is those who are resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel boldness, our appeal, Paul says, does not first off spring up from error. So Paul is telling these Christians, hey, in spite of what those jokes are saying, my gospel appeal to you, my gospel boldness did not spring up out of error. Now, what is Paul saying there? Paul is saying that we just preach the text. That's what he's saying. 
We didn't preach a Jesus made out of our imagination. We didn't preach a Jesus like a cultural Jesus, which, by the way, is so prevalent today. I mean, every book on the Christian book bestseller list is like, you know, here's the real Jesus, the true Jesus, the historian. And it's all, you know, just read the Bible. That's where Jesus is. There's this, there's this deep pressure now from people in seminary, and really, I think, just anybody in this, in this age of Twitter, to say something creative, to say something fancy, new and fresh, to say something that's tweetable. And when they do that, what often happens is they stray off into error because they're trying to think of something new and creative. God reveals himself to us in his word for a reason. Without his self-revelation, we would never know who God is, who the Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, or what his will for our lives are. That's the reason that he reveals himself to us so that we might know truth and true reality. And as soon as we get away from that, that's when we wander into error and idolatry. So what Paul is saying right here, he's giving us all a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's given you the, the license to be boring in your ministries. I mean, that's really what he's saying. Say, don't worry about being fancy or saying something creative or new. Innovation is usually a good thing, but not when it comes to theology. Just stick to the text. Be boring is what Paul says. That's what we did. We simply just preached the text. Secondly, our gospel proclamation did not spring up from impurity. Using that Nietzsche phrase, we did not have the will to power. I mean, guys, we didn't try to get anything from you. I mean, just look how we lived. First off, clearly we weren't trying to get your money. We worked day and night in your midst. We were tent makers, and we did that for the sole reason that you wouldn't be tempted to think that our ministry was simply to, to take your pocketbooks. We did that purposefully, so we weren't trying to get money, nor were we trying to be popular and gain fame. Are you kidding me? We've been persecuted since day one. If we wanted to be popular, we certainly wouldn't have gone into the ministry. I mean, that's, those things don't go together. At least they shouldn't go together. So Paul right here, he is saying, he's assuring them that his message was sure and trustworthy, it was faithful, and that his character was godly. Paul is saying, none of this had anything to do with me or Silas or Timothy, had nothing to do with us, but it had everything to do with the glory of God. Thirdly, he says, our proclamation, our appeal was not an attempt to deceive you. So I think if, if Paul was here today, he would say, listen, we were not... We were not prosperity preachers. We weren't interested in preaching health and wealth. That's not what we were about. All right, we didn't try to pull the wool over your eyes. We didn't try to angle ourselves to present ourselves. You know, we're not the Wizard of Oz, presenting ourselves as something that we're not pulling the levers behind the curtain. We were genuine with you. We weren't trying to, to, to shield you from the cost of discipleship. I mean, we bled in front of you. We were being persecuted in front of you. We, we were never disgenuous. And furthermore, we, we were true with the gospel. You know exactly what's going to happen if you follow the Lord. I think Paul is the type of person, if someone came to him and said, Paul, I want to follow the Lord Jesus, Paul would say, praise God and mean it. He would give thanks. But he might also tell that person, now go home and think about that decision for the next 24 hours. Because I don't want you to be mistaken, there is a cost of discipleship of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not interested in building his numbers. He wasn't trying to deceive anybody. He was genuine with his person, and he was genuine with the gospel. In verse 3, Paul makes this amazing claim. Our word was true, our integrity was godly, and our motives were pure. 
And he said, in regards to those three criteria, our conscience is blameless. Brothers, how can we get in a position where we can say that our conscience is clear in those three matters? Paul tells us in verse 4. He says, my conscience is clear. I did not fall into those errors because I remembered who I was. I am only a steward. What is a steward? Again, a steward is someone who looks after and manages the property of another. Paul had a proper understanding of who's who. The gospel is God's, not his. His ministry is God's, not his. The church is God's, not his. Paul did not slip into error because he remembered who he was. He had a proper understanding of who's who. God is the master, and he's only a steward. I think sometimes we can get those two things mixed up, where we get so involved with our plans, you know, and our agenda, and we feel like God exists to carry out our plans and our agenda, as if we are the master and he is the servant. And we fall into that a lot. But brothers, when we adopt that mindset and we're not checked by it, we open ourselves up to a world of hurt, a world of disappointment, and ultimately spiritual danger. And so Paul is saying, if you want to be effective in ministry, remember who you are. You're just a steward. You're not, a, you're, you're not the central character of this story, Barton Kimbrough. God is. God is the Lord of your life. God is the Lord of your family. God is the Lord of your business. God is the Lord of your Bible study. God is the Lord of your small group. God is the Lord of your one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationships. God is the Lord of you raising your children in the faith. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. You're just a steward. God is Lord. So he had this God-centeredness that allowed him to be a faithful steward. And because he had a God-centeredness, he was constantly aware of two things which would be very beneficial for us to remember in our own ministries. Because of this God-centeredness, Paul had the sobering reality that God was constantly examining his heart. God examines all of our hearts regardless if we're aware of it or not. But Paul had this God-awareness, this God-centeredness, where he knew that God was constantly examining his heart, which meant Paul understood that God knew whether if he was faking it or not. God knew, Paul understood, God knew whether if Paul was the real deal or if he wasn't. He understood that God knew the motives and our inclinations, the motives of everything we do in life, particularly in ministry. Paul, is this about you or is it about me and my glory? So he had this sobering awareness that God knows our hearts, and that kind of served as a, a boundary for him, accountability. But there was also another thing that Paul was aware of, and it was very encouraging. Having that constant God awareness, Paul knew that he was approved of by God as someone who had faith in his son. And brothers, I know that sounds like a no-brainer, but it's true of you too. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Father in heaven approves of you. He approves of you. And Paul, he, he gives God thanks for this in his Corinthian correspondence. He, he says, I'm so thankful that Jesus, as my representative, had gone into that cosmic courtroom where he won for me my acquittal. And I'm so happy in this. I'm, I'm rejoicing in this. I no longer care what people say about me. I no longer care what I even think about myself because I know what God thinks of me. In the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm his good and faithful servant. And brothers, when we operate out of that approval, out of that awareness, right? 
we stop pleasing other people. We stop seeking their, their approval because we know we already have the approval that matters. And so that enables us to be a faithful steward of all that God has given us when we have that constant awareness. God loves you. So how are we going to be a faithful steward? Rest in the love that God has for you. Fruitfulness, faithfulness. Thirdly, the parental love. We see this in verses 5 through 12. There's so much in these verses, for the sake of time, I just want us to focus on two couplets. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8 and verses 11 and 12. This is so wild to me. Paul says, in spite of what all these, these people are saying about me, if you want to accurately understand my ministry and my disposition towards these Christians, it's akin to the love and the affections that parents have for their own children. If you want to understand me, Paul says, look at a good set of parents who love their kids. That's what Paul says. It's actually the love that God has for us as his people. We see that in Isaiah 49, chapter 66 as well, Hosea 11, and Matthew chapter 7. And it's also the type of love and affection that we are to have for one another, this parental love. So let's look at these separately. First off, the love of a mom. There's a lot of folks in the church today And if you're involved with Twitter, you see this more often than not. But there's a lot of folks that claim the name of Christ who think being bold for Jesus equates to being mean to other people. In the way they present Jesus. It's just nasty the way they do it. And it's a a form of, I think, spiritual abuse where whatever authority they got, they hold it over other people like a nail, usually just to make themselves feel important. right? But just think about Paul. Paul says, listen, I was an apostle, which meant I have all the authority that I need. But Paul never did that. He never bullied people. He loved them (laughs) like a mom. Isn't that bonkers that Paul, in order for us to understand what his ministry is like, he goes, I'm like a mother. I was affectionate like a mother. Listen to what he says. We were gentle among you, like a nursing, not just a mom, like a nursing mom taking care of her babies. That's how I ministered to you. Brothers, find yourself a pastor that treats you like that. Isn't that amazing? Paul was bold in speaking and proclaiming the message of Jesus, but he was also bold in living like Jesus. How did Jesus live? Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, he was gentle and lowly. And in human perspective, like in this day and age, the closest example to gentle and lowly is a nursing mom. Paul says, I was like a nursing mom to you. That does not mean he was a wuss. It takes hard work to be gentle. It's very easy to be rude and it's very easy to be mean. It's very easy to treat people cruelly. That comes easy to sinners like us. It's hard work to be gentle and kind. A good mom, they're some of the toughest people you'll ever meet. I mean, my wife puts me to shame all the time. Her patience is, I mean, it's straight from the spirit. I mean, it's amazing. We have a three-month-old at home and a five-year-old. She is a patient lady. She is tough as nails in her gentleness. Paul was tough as nails in his gentleness. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, being affectionately desirous of you. That in itself deserves a sermon. He only knew these people for a month. And he goes, I am affectionately desirous of you. Which meant he probably knew their names, right? But he was also affectionately desirous of people he had just met. Unbelievable. But that's not the main part. 
affectionately desirous of you. We not only shared the gospel, but also our own lives. Just like a mom, Paul knew that his calling was not to get anything from someone, but rather to give something. And what was he called to give? Like a mom, he was called to give his own life. And you and I are called to give our lives away like a nursing mom is to her kids. I like how John Piper describes it. He says, by our very nature as Christians, we are life-giving people. He calls us fountains. As Christians, we are fountains. That's our identity. And he takes this from John chapter 4 where Jesus says, whoever drinks of water I give him will never be thirsty again. So that's talking about conversion when you come into Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to say in John 4, it will become in him a spring of water and out of this believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. So in Jesus Christ, uh, John Piper says, we become these fountains. We become springs. As those who have received life, we now give life to other people. That's what springs do. Springs, if it's going to be a good and healthy spring, waters the countryside. As Christians who have received life in the Lord Jesus Christ, we spread life wherever we go. And we do that as those who are secure in the Lord Jesus, who have received every spiritual blessing, who is perfectly loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We now, out of an overflow of his perfect love for us, love other people. Jesus himself says, a new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. How does Jesus love us? He gave himself for us. Paul says, this is how we minister to people. You love them sacrificially like a mother. You have a life-giving love just as Christ gave us. So we have, a, we have a maternal love, but we also have a paternal love. We see that in verse 11 through 12. Not only are we to love one another and those that we lead as a mother, but we're also to love them like a father. Children need a good, good word of encouragement and love. They also sometimes need a good swift kick in the pants. You know, I'm not talking about provoking our children to anger or violence even. I'm just talking, kids need to be corrected. And I'm thankful for the gracious kick in the pants my dad gave me when I was growing up. I don't know where I would be without him. But Paul is saying, like a good dad, he got into the business of his spiritual children. He showed them. He modeled the Christian life for them. He showed them how to follow the Lord Jesus. He encouraged them in the faith where they need to be encouraged, Paul tells us. And he also corrected them when they needed to be corrected. Which isn't always the, the, I don't know, the most popular thing to do, (laughs) to have those hard conversations, right? But like any good dad, Paul had a spine, He wasn't a pushover because he was afraid how his kids might respond to him. There's a lot of kids I grew up with whose parents never, ever disciplined them. And of course, as young people, we thought they were the coolest parents in the world. Every single one of those kids that grew up resenting their parents because they knew their parents didn't really love them. Paul led his spiritual children in the way they should go, even when that meant having difficult, hard conversations. And if you're in ministry, you're bound to have a difficult, hard conversation with those that you lead. But Paul did it anyway because he loved them enough to do it. So the love that we're being called to here, this paternal love, is not really a love that's truly found in this world. The loves that we find in this world are selfish and are meistic. But Paul is calling us to a sacrificial love, the love of a good mom and dad. Ultimately, he's calling us to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ because we know this analogy that he's using right here is just describing the perfect amazing love, the sacrificial love, the life-giving love that Jesus Christ has for us. That's the type of love that we're called to have for one another. Now, how in the world are we supposed to love each other that way? I mean, I don't know most of you from Adam. I mean, how are we supposed to love each other in the church, a big church like this? How are we supposed to 
to love each other like a mom and a father. It's hard enough to love our own kids that way or to our spouse. I mean, but how are you supposed to love other people that way? It does not come from gritting your teeth. It does not come from pulling up your bootstraps. It doesn't come from shaming yourself to love each other this way. It comes from resting in the perfect love that Jesus Christ has for you. Because when you know that you are, again, in the, in the apple of your father's eye, when you know that you're perfectly loved by Jesus Christ who gave himself for you, and you're resting in that, there's this bottomless reservoir of perfect love that he has for you. You're able then to love other people without strings attached. You're, you're able to love other people sacrificiously and zealously and boldly because you know that everything you could ever possibly need or want in this life or the next, you have secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not self-preserving anymore. You're able to live recklessly for the kingdom of God because you know that you're wrapped up in the arms of your Savior. What Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, like right now as a human being, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do we love like Paul? How do we love each other like loving parents? How do we love sacrificially as we're being called to? It's just simple. You're resting in the perfect sacrificial love that Christ has for you. And we live out of an overflow of that. Lastly, very quickly, the last metaphor that Paul uses is in verse 13 through 16, and it's that of a herald. What is a herald? A herald is simply the bringer of news. I like this a whole lot because Paul makes her job so easy right here. We get in the weeds of ministry and it's like, oh man, how am I going to do this? How am I going to how am I going to set up this, this ministry? What are the steps that we need to take? What committees do we need? And as Presbyterians, we have like a committee for a committee. It gets complicated, right? Paul says, don't worry about any of that. Your job's an easy one. You're simply a messenger. And you've got one news story to share. And it's the greatest news story in the history of the world. It's the story of how God became man and died for your sins, but rose on the third day. And whoever has faith in him, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. That's it. Paul, look at verse 13. He does this, this interplay of the words, God, us, and you. This is how it works, Paul says. You heard the word of God from us. That simple, boring, old gospel story. You heard the word of God from us which is effectively at work in you, changing you and transforming you. It was not our words. It was not our ingenuity. It wasn't our know-how. It was the word of God that saved you, is saving you, and will ultimately save you. Now, to reject such a message like the Jews did with Jesus and the Judaizers were now doing with Paul results in wrath. Because hear this, brothers. Make no mistake. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not that it gives off power, but that it is the power of God for salvation. And our God is mighty to save. You have a simple message. Share it. How do we apply this? You and I are not apostles. Most of us are not in vocational ministry. But we are approved of by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ... Share the message of Jesus as a dying man to dying men. That's it. And here's why. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God 
the transformed children of God into the likeness of the Son of God. Sandy Wilson used to say, no, you're not a prophet. No, you're not an apostle. But you are the most important men in the city of Memphis because you have been entrusted with the gospel. Brothers, four metaphors for ministry. By God's grace, with the help of his spirit, let us embody them so we might see Memphis be turned upside down. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for the gospel. I'm grateful for my brothers and friends and men in this room, the ministries, whatever they might be, that you've given us. We pray that we would rest all the more deeply in the powerful message of the gospel so that by it we might boldly proclaim it for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.